Tonight's talk is about balance and trust and the relationship between balance and trust. The Buddha presented a context for awakening called the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of awakening. I talked about them a bit in the joy talk. Mindfulness is the first factor of awakening. The next three are the energizing factors of enlightenment investigation, energy, and joy, or rapture. If you remember the relationship between all of these, mindfulness is very active. It's a strong observing power. It's a non-judgmental, very strong observing power of what's happening moment by moment. Investigation is the light in the mind. It illuminates whatever it is that's happening. It's what allows us to take a closer look. Energy is often called heroic effort. I think of it as courage. It's the courage it takes to be with what's happening moment by moment and to sustain it that has a a warrior kind of energy in it. Again, this is a very active... It's it's important to see that investigation, energy, joy, how active and energizing these qualities are. Joy is that moment when we take an interest in what's happening that moment when we have that sense of, oh, let me see if I can open to this and work with it. We're interested. Instead of having resistance to aversion, we're interested in aversion. Instead of having resistance to the knee pain, there's interest in the knee pain, and that interest is very joyful. It's very energized. If you ever take the time to look at the Buddha's face, there are many, many different statues from very uh, varying traditions of the Buddha. But if you just take a look now at the Buddha's face, it doesn't have that kind of "Wow, yippee!" You know, let's go, you know, it's not. <laughs> You can see that there, there isn't just these ener- energizing factors going on. It's, uh, there's something cooling out that joy. It's not the absence of joy. There's a, a serenity. Um, the, the greatest of the people who carve the, the statues or make these statues have a deep understanding of this balance. You can feel the balance. So the tranquilizing factors of enlightenment are what brings serenity to the Buddha's smile. It's a very, you can feel there's a depth, you know, there's a very deep inner place, stillness, that the joy has 
come to. There's a balance. So tonight's talk is a lot about calm, concentration, and equanimity, but it's also about the balance. Often there's a kind of subtle or not so subtle war within ourselves between the energizing factors, the warrior kind of factors, and the tranquilizing factors, the calm factors. You might reflect upon yourself and see which of these you identify with or are easier for you and which are more difficult for you. We tend to incline toward the ones that are easy for us rather than incline toward the ones that might help balance us. I think it's helpful to have this map or context of these energizing and tranquilizing factors of, of awakening because we can have a sense of where we incline to and what might actually be helpful for us and we can slowly learn to balance ourselves. When we learn to balance ourselves, we're not so dependent on an outer structure or an outer authority. You know, we, learn, we learn to balance ourselves from the inside, understanding that these tranquilizing and energizing factors will be coming in and out of balance even in a sitting, never mind a day, never mind a lifetime. <laughs> When we learn to balance ourselves, it heals this inner war or this inner split. And there's this balance of being soft yet strong. There's a tendency for some people to be very soft and maybe passive, but not have the warrior or strength. The balance would be soft and strong. Maybe we'll learn to be vulnerable, but alert or precise. This balance of gentleness and alertness and precision aspires to a wholeness or completeness. The balance that the Buddha represents is a deep inner union. It's healing, healing any division or split. (coughs) Awakening or enlightenment, one of the ways the Buddha described it as if waking up from a deep sleep. In each moment of our life, there's the possibility of awakening. You've heard us stressing that each moment is equally important. So the moment where you you reach to get a bowl in the dining room is as important as a moment where you're with the breath or a moment where you choose to go to sleep. They're all important. This is a part of a poem by Kabir. Wake up, wake up. 
You have slept millions and millions of years. Why not wake up this morning? (laughs) Wake up. Wake up. You have slept millions and millions of years. Why not wake up this morning? Why not? (laughs) There's deeper and deeper levels of awakening. We recover more and more of our life's experience as we awaken. There's less and less sense of sleeping. The first of the tranquilizing factors of enlightenment is calm. It's said to be like extinguishing a fire. In the text, it's said to be like going from uh, the hot sun on a very hot day to the cool shade of a tree. It's that feeling of being cooled out. Calm means that the mind is no longer on fire. It's no longer burning with attachment or burning with aversion. (coughs) Some people think that this kind of calmness or coolness is something awful. Um, but it, it is like uh, extinguishing a fire. It's very, very peaceful, very, very tranquil. Often when I'm teaching, I notice that a person will come in for an interview one day and there might be a feeling of it being very, very stormy. And then if I see the person the next day, they always forget that it was stormy yesterday, but they they seem very calm and cooled out. You might notice how you go through these storms and then you'll feel calm, another storm, and feel calm. When I first came to IMS to be on staff, I was a cook here. The teacher that Stephen mentioned last night that he met in Burma, Mahasi Saidao, came here. He came with, I think, about seven monks. It was a lot of monks, and they stayed at the house across the street. There were 140 students that came. And back in those days, there were four cooks, and we never had, we hadn't developed the concept then that we could ask for more help (laughs) as cooks. So we were all pretty busy because we were cooking for the monks and Mahasi and the people here. I remember I had given up my room, so I was sleeping out in a tent, and I would get up at two in the morning and run over to where Mahasi was staying to help cook breakfast for him. And so I don't tend to be, I'm an aversion type, so when I wake up first thing in the morning, that's not like, oh boy. It's sort of like, oh no. (laughs) So I was kind of grumpily walking over uh, in a big rush. The alarm probably (laughs) didn't go off, and I ran in the house, and it was like, oh. You know, it's like the, the calm was so tangible. 
you know, it was just like I hit this wall of calm as I was walking in the door. It was just such a new experience (laughs) for me. Uh, It really affected me. And it wasn't like something was said to me about calm. It was more that I was experiencing it on a level that was so powerful, I couldn't, you know, block it. I was very fortunate to be able to cook breakfast for Mahasi with his kapia, his attendant, who we later found out was also a brilliant meditation teacher, but he was presented to us as a cook. And I remember one day I burned my hand on the burner. I was going, ouch! He was like, burning burning. (laughs) And so I was like, burning it, it's really burning. (laughs) But there was such a calm with it, you know, it really, again, I'd never dreamed that it was possible to stand there noticing just burning and being really calm about it. Calmness can only occur if the turmoil, the mental turmoil or scatteredness in our mind has come to a kind of stillness. The opposite of calmness is feeling nervous or scattered. You know that time when you feel like you have to do something? It's it's that urgency to do something, to write or to read or to move. Calmness or tranquility often simplifies our life because there isn't this scatteredness. We tend to, uh, our movements tend to become more gentle and graceful. We tend to uh, harm less beings because we're so calm. We don't tend to rush into any harmful actions. Because there's less harmful actions, there's less remorse in the mind which leads to more, more calmness. The feeling of calmness is actually very quiet. I think the thing that um, scared people the most about Mahasi Sayadaw was how quiet he was. It, it, it was just, uh, like you said, Mr. Void. And it just so non-reactive, just so tranquil. But a a quiet mind isn't a dead mind. A quiet mind just means that there isn't this turmoil or scatteredness. This calmness affects people very, very deeply. The traditional aids to calmness are nutritious food, good weather, a comfortable posture, balanced effort in practice, avoiding bad-tempered people, (laughs) it's true, (laughs) and keeping the company of tranquil people. The other night, Stephen and I went to some neighbors 
for dinner. And there was a man who came to visit who had a car from 1917. Some of you might have seen us driving in here in the car. It was really interesting. I'd never, that means the car was 75 years old, but it was quite big. And this man, I decided that I really had to be back here. So <laughs> he, he was coming along, and I could tell, he's, he lives in Barrie, and I could tell he's always wanted to drive up into this driveway. <laughs> you know, and it was just like he asked if he could, and I said, yeah. And so we were driving in, and one of the staff people just kind of bowed as we were driving by. And he said, what do I do? What do I do? What do I say? What do I say? It was like, it was <laughs> so interesting, the calm and the silence already was, he was starting to panic. And I was like, I was like, just keep quiet. Don't say anything. You know, shut up. You know, <laughs> but he just kept getting louder and louder and louder. And he was just practically you know, like a bullhorn by the time he dropped us off. It was so interesting to see how, you know, that calmness and silence was so unfamiliar to him. He thought he had to talk and affect people in that way. This is a great place for me to put in a plug about keeping the silence. Um, At this point in the retreat, it's often a time where people, there'll be so much energy. Uh, and it's that kind of energy that will be kind of even explosive, like if somebody laughed in the hall, you know, the whole place would explode with laughter. It's that there's a lot of energy. There'll be a tendency to talk, want to talk more. Please try to contain it. Uh, you just don't know how silent it is here and how precious it is. The best way to gauge it is to be somebody like on staff here or teach here where we move in and out of it. When you're a yogi, you really can't measure it. You lose any ability to measure it unless you happen to go for a walk and run into a party or something. but if, you're, if you run out and go shopping in town and come back, uh, I always kind of gauge how quickly I'm going if I almost run somebody over in the hallway. <laughs> you know, I know, oh, I'm moving too fast. It's a, this place is an immediate feedback system for if you're rushing or if you're getting really loud talking. It's amazing. And I always appreciate that moment when I come back in here and just feel the calm and the silence. It is a sacred space. This is an anonymous Chinese poem. My home is in the flowering mountain. My joy is purest idleness. In a rush hut by a blue grotto, at the end of a crazy winding path. At noon I take a simple meal, and when I'm full, I take my staff and wander to the mountaintop.
and gaze. It's not a bad way to live. That's calm. My joy is purest idleness. Not something we could advertise on television yet, I don't think. So there's calm, and the next tranquilizing factor is concentration, or samadhi. Samadhi, or concentration, is a unified mind. It's a collected mind. It's a focused mind. If you think of the surface of a pond, or the surface of the ocean, Usually our minds are like the surface of the ocean on a stormy day. There's this sense of being lost at sea, and it's stormy. There's a lot of uh, thoughts going on that are usually in turmoil. We're not aware of what's going on. So there's this disturbance or scatteredness. You know those times when the weather is really beautiful, and the wind is still, and the surface of the ocean or the surface of the pond is still. This stillness is, con- is like concentration for our mind. If the surface of the pond or ocean is still, not only will the whole sky be reflected, all the trees, everything, birds, everything gets reflected, but you can explore deeply into the water the same, the the stillness that comes from samadhi or concentration has the same effect on us. It's from that stillness that we can explore. If you try to uh, notice how the thought process happens when you're really lost in thought, we really don't stand a chance. Or if you try to explore what the nature of the body is if the mind is disturbed, There's just no possibility for exploration. It's too much turmoil. So the the image of anchor is really wonderful because there's that image of being lost on the surface of the ocean or the pond, and there's that anchoring in. Maybe for you the breath works as an anchor, so one would anchor in there. And if there's enough stillness, one can explore the breath. It doesn't just have to be an anchor. The breath can also be a place to explore, but it is also a place to anchor. The body can be a place to anchor. (coughs) Sounds can be a place to anchor. So without concentration, we can't explore. With concentration, the mind is secluded. And it's important to understand what it is that we're secluded from. It sounds good. What are we, we're, that seclusion is often what we initially come to practice for. We're secluded from the hindrances. We're secluded from sleepiness, restlessness, aversion, attachment, and doubt. 
And that seclusion feels wonderful. It's not something to think of as a preliminary step. Um, It's quite important all through one's practice. The path of purification is divided into three sections, sila, or morality, samadhi, concentration, and wisdom, panya. Concentration is considered, you know, a third of this path of purification. It's important to cultivate because this this stillness and seclusion is very good for the body and the mind. Sometimes this seclusion takes firmness. You know, when there's a lot of thinking going on, sometimes it's just like training a dog to sit. Sit. (laughs) Sit. (laughs) Sit. You know, it's coming back to the anchor, coming back to the anchor, coming back to the anchor. It's a little tedious, um, but it's, it's learning how to come back to the present moment. Uh, sometimes that takes a firm commitment. It doesn't have to be fierce. Uh, sometimes we can say no thank you to the thoughts or no. Um, but sometimes it will feel like it's taking that kind of firmness. And that's okay. It's possible to explore anything if the stillness is happening. When the stillness is happening, then we can start to connect with what's happening moment to moment in our moment to moment experience. If you really understand what Vipassana is about, it's actually not quite easy. It's not so easy. Say you're wanting to connect with a sound and understand what's happening. First, it takes aiming the attention to the sound. We have to aim it. We, then we need to connect with it. And this, this is happening in a split second. There's, in one moment, there's the aiming, there's the connecting, and then there's the sustaining. And things are moving extraordinarily quickly. So we're asking you not only to aim, you know, aim, connect, sustain, but then we're asking you to notice what it is that's happening and to see what happens to it. This is advanced psychology. You know, this is not easy. A lot of the time you'll be working with the stillness, the concentration, and then when you feel like you can explore you know, take a look, see if you can connect, see if you can see what happens. Uh, it might be that that lasts five seconds for you, and then there's not enough energy, and so you kind of wait a while and rest again. That five seconds is important. You can understand a lot in that. It's not done through the thinking process. So the initial part of the stillness when that is developed is then learning how to sink the attention into what's happening. It's learning how to sink the attention into what it is that's moving. That you have to understand that things are moving, the sounds are moving, the breath is moving, the sensations are moving. So it takes this delicacy 
of sinking in and then waiting. Sometimes you might try just sinking in without knowing what it is that's happening. If you try to know it before you sink in, you can't. You have to experience it, you have to feel it before you can know it. So there's that sinking in, sinking in, sinking in. And and then in a moment there'll be that ability to sustain, sustain, look at it, and notice it and see what happens. And that's really when the exploration starts getting exciting. There'll be that interest. The stillness or samadhi brings much simplicity to our lives. You might lose perspective while you hear here how important it is in a day just to be with one step. You know that it's so important for us to learn how to take one breath at a time, to just reach for the door, one doorway at a time. This brings an ease such an ease to our lives. It's very, very simple and brings a great, great sense of well-being to us. Even if there's just one moment that the mind is free from mental torment, it's a big accomplishment in the day. And we forget that perspective when we're on retreat. So as we awaken to one breath, we can learn to take each moment of our life one at a time, each landscape of sadness one at a time, each landscape of anger one at a time. And that brings more ease and more well-being. There's a saying from Dogen that's helped me a lot over the years. He said that gaining enlightenment is like the moon reflecting in the water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water disturbed. Although its light is extensive and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch across. The whole moon and the whole sky are reflected in a dewdrop in the grass, in one drop of water. The whole moon and the whole sky are reflected in a dewdrop in the grass, in one drop of water. That one drop of water is one moment. Drop by drop, moment by moment, That's what we're awakening to. And that totality, the whole world is reflected in one moment when we're open. You know, the the more we open, the more chance of understanding the whole. A moment of awakening is a moment of complete understanding. The heart or mind is so open there's that moment where we really understand completely.
So there's calm and then concentration. And the last tranquilizing or calming factors of awakening are is equanimity. Detachment is born out of equanimity. Equanimity is so sweet. It's the sweetest. It's being okay with whatever's happening. It's a deep balance of mind, no matter what the ups and downs are in life or the vicissitudes of life. It's just being able to be okay with it. The opposite of equanimity is the reacting mind, reacting to pleasure with attachment or reacting to unpleasantness with aversion. The Buddha taught that it's possible to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion. This doesn't mean that we're going to be free from pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings. It's too bad. (laughs) But that's the way it is. I always think, when I think of that, when I... I taught learning disabilities for a while up in northern Maine. And I used to be, I used to go into a classroom and get a child or several children and then take them out. And one time I was, I used to overhear a lot on my way in and out of classrooms. One time I was on my way into this kindergarten class and the, they, they were switching over. One group of kids came for half a year and then the next group came for half a year. This little girl was there, and you know how sweet little kindergartners can be. And it was about the third day of school. And so this little girl named Melissa said to the teacher, the teacher was giving her a hard time. She said, you know, I don't like school. I don't think I like school. (laughs) And the teacher said, that's tough luck, Melissa. You have 12 more years of it. And I thought, oh, (laughs) what a way to start school. (laughs) But in some ways, when we hear this teaching, you know, there's no end to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. It's a little similar, you know, that stuff like you've got another life, you know, you've got a lifetime or lifetimes. We really have to get that, you know, no matter how uh, much understanding we develop, that the human realm is like this. It's this amazing mix of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, and we have no control over it. When we hear that we can be free from greed, hatred, and delusion, we often apply our great willpower to it, and we think, yep, I'm going to do it now. (laughs) I'm going to be finish with this, you know, I'm going to be perfectly free right now. Um, And we want to be rid of the reacting mind before we even understand it, before we really even experience it. Learning how to work with the reacting mind is what melts the ice. Sometimes I think of us like glaciers, (laughs) and there's that, that melting that will happen as we start to accept the reacting mind. Accepting the reacting mind is how we learn to work with it. 
when we learn to work with it, that's what enables us to develop more and more understanding. For example, when aversion arises, we usually identify with it and think that it's mine. It's my anger. And I want to get rid of it. That's aversion to aversion. When you think of the aversion or attachment, you can think of them as very primal. It's just not wanting in a big way. (laughs) Not wanting. Um, Attachment to pleasure is just a very primal wanting. It's wanting in a big way. And it's... When we start to get a little understanding of this, you know how you'll call some sittings good sittings mm-hmm. and some sittings <coughs> bad sittings. So maybe you had a sitting where you know, there was some nice concentration and mindfulness and equanimity. Maybe the energy was good. Um, and then the next time you come in the hall, you think, well, I don't care if I get that back. <laughs> and then you start to fall asleep. <laughs> And there's aversion, aversion, aversion. Uh, And you think, well, I don't care. I don't care if I get that back. But you really do care. (laughs) That's, that's, uh, you're trying to fake equanimity. (laughs) And you'll see yourself do it a lot. It's like, you know, I don't care if I ever have a mindful moment again. But we, until you really believe that, until you really accept that maybe you'll never have a mindful moment again, there'll be aversion. Uh, and it's not so simple. In a, if you look at a day on retreat, you'll see how much you're trying to fake it, but that it's actually not happening. If you look at how much we're in the present moment, And this is the difficult part. It's like if you're actually honest and you look how much we're actually in the present moment. And you're honest. You'll see that a lot of the time what's happening is the reacting mind. But we don't want to admit it because we think we should always be in the present moment. That goal gets in the way of what's actually happening, what's actually true. So we have to start to admit to ourselves that that the reacting mind is happening quite a bit. And we don't have to make enemies out of them. We make enemies out of thinking, of thoughts. It's amazing. We make enemies out of aversion or enemies out of attachment. And really, they're just, you know, rolling along over and over and over again. And fighting them without mindfulness makes us more and more tight and less peaceful. That's why I say that equanimity is um, so sweet. When you taste that feeling of being okay with aversion, having equanimity with aversion is the sweetest thing. Or having equanimity with attachment is so sweet because you don't have to fight it anymore. Equanimity 
is the difference between being at war with ourselves, with something inside us, or being at war with something outside of us. It's the difference between war and peace. So when equanimity is present, we don't have to run away from pain anymore. And when equanimity is present, we don't have to hold on to pleasure anymore. And there's a deep joy that comes from this ability to be okay with life, just as it is. Things just as they are. This practice of opening takes tremendous compassion for ourselves and others. We're uncovering what most people work desperately hard to keep hidden. Think of all the energy that people in this world use to deny pain. Just if we look at our own culture and we see the denial of old age, the denial of um, any kind of uh, addictions or the denial of any kind of abuse or, you know, it's such a denial of any kind of pain. Um, And basically that's just aversion to pain. It's very simple. Or if you look at the opposite where People tend to pursue pleasure. Maybe we want a better TV, or maybe we want a better relationship. Maybe we want a better stereo or a better car. There's that sense that we never have enough, that we're never satisfied. There's that looking for the better one. And what I mean that we're uncovering what most people desperately keep hidden Um, we learn to hide the reacting mind very young in life. I went into a store last year with one of my friend's uh, little girls. She was around two. We went into this bakery that was just incredible. I mean, they had these nice glass cases and just the most beautifully uh, decorated cookies, you know, just case after case, this little girl came in and she just said everything that I was thinking. I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. She just didn't hide it, you know. (laughs) And that's what we do on retreat. You know, we uncover what is usually everybody's thinking. You know, just if you could hitch everybody's mind up to a loudspeaker, <laughs> you know, especially in the dining room, you know, if you just imagine going in the dining room and having your mind on the radio that day. <laughs> we don't want to admit it, but that's the reacting mind. So learning to work with the reacting mind takes great equanimity. When it's light, when we're mindful, it's almost like we feel invincible. And that's when we plan when we want to come to more retreats. (laughs) You know, 
we have that feeling that how could I possibly ever have gotten identified with anything? You know, we feel so clear. And you know, it's just, we're just so inspired. <laughs> we want to sit forever. And then maybe <laughs> two seconds later, <laughs> we get clobbered. You know, there's no light, it's dark. And um, we think, well, <laughs> I know that terror has come for the millionth time today. I don't care. But I care. You know, there's that reacting mind again. You know, that sound, you know. It's driving me crazy. I can't stand it. There, we're in. We're lost again. We're lost again, and that's when we usually think, "How could I possibly have ever been clear?" You know? It's dark, and then we usually count the minutes or the hours. I've known people to count the seconds until a course is over, <laughs> and we all. I bet you all know at least how many days it is to the end of the retreat. You know, if not the hours. And when you're really uptight, it can be seconds. It kind of fills in the time for a while. (laughs) I had one retreat where I used to make calendars (laughs) and just kind of cross out the days. (laughs) This practice takes tremendous courage because we can't fake acceptance. And part of the process is, you know, if you're going to go through a day of retreat, you know you're going to get lost. Um, That's part of what takes so much courage. And that courage is ultimately love. Because love means that we're allowing the whole show. We think that getting lost, something's wrong. But actually, it's part of the purification. It's how we learn to work with aversion. It's how we learn to work with attachment. We learn it by going through it, by getting lost over and over and over again. Also, whenever there are moments of mindfulness or a moment, even a moment of mindfulness, that's very, very pure. And that purity will make space for a layer to emerge. And that layer is often unpleasant or difficult. It's something we've been repressing. So we, we think that when a layer emerges, that something's wrong. But actually, this practice is called the path of purification. It implies that something is being purified. And what's being purified is this the very deep roots of aversion to unpleasantness, attachment to pleasure. Wherever we are, however it's unfolding for us, it's just where we need to be to grow. Learning to trust this unfolding process, this this path of purification, this unlayering, is really important. We come to understand that we don't learn to be free unless we learn about being lost. The understanding develops from the times that we get lost. 
And then there's that moment where we see it clearly. Equanimity really helps us develop balance because no matter what the circumstance, equanimity helps us accept the circumstance and make it workable. The Buddha taught uh, eight worldly conditions that I just wanted to go over briefly. They're called Lokadhamma. Loka means a being. It means an animal or human being, a celestial being, a whale. Any being is a loka. And dhamma is truth or law. So loka-dhamma means the natural consequences that every being has to contend with in life. And the Buddha said that loka-dhamma is like the shadow following us if the sun is out. These laws, the loka-dhamma laws, are following all beings or where all beings are chasing them. They come in pairs. The first pair is gain and loss. The second pair is honor and dishonor. The third pair are praise and blame. The fourth pair are happiness and misery or contentment and comfort and pain. The Buddha said that these worldly conditions obsess the world. The world revolves around these worldly conditions. It might be helpful for you to reflect some time about how it has been in your life with gain and loss. This implies material things, getting pleasant or desirable things or wealth. Or it could be essential things. Loss is the loss of those things. Failure in business, failure in wealth or property loss. Maybe there's been a time in your life where you were robbed or you didn't have much. Maybe that time is now. Maybe there was a time where you had more. And just think of how people in this world are, are chasing after the gain, chasing and chasing after the gain, and not able to accept the times of loss. There's the times in life of honor and dishonor. The Buddha meant for honor having friends or family or a companion, children, or a lot of people that we can exert any influence on. And dishonor is being deprived of these. And just to think of your life and think of the times you've been deprived of having these and times you haven't. Praise and blame. That's often very tricky to be able to be balanced or equanimous with the times that we're praised and the times we're blamed. Criticism. How easy is it for us to accept criticism? Or also the blame includes abuse. 
happiness and misery. Misery can be the physical or mental discomfort, pain, disease, accidents, or weather, being deprived of the things we want. And happiness are all the opposites of those. Contentment, any ways that we're content. Of these pairs, you can see that there's four that we usually like a lot. (laughs) And there's four that we really don't like very much. Um, And it's interesting because nobody can flee from all of these. And often the good and the bad or the difficult and the easy go together. And even if we've had something our whole life, ultimately we have to let it go when we die. Sukha and dukkha alternate happiness and suffering, happiness and suffering. So the Buddha taught that the highest blessing was to receive these ups and downs of lokadhamma with equanimity, with balance. Ultimately, it's to learn that our happiness doesn't have to depend on inner or outer circumstances. If we can learn to accept when we encounter the the ups and downs of life, we'll develop more and more understanding. And that's the way I think that we can cope with with difficulty in our life is to see that out of opening and and working with the difficulty we develop more understanding and then we have more balance with what's difficult and we don't hold on to what's pleasurable. The purest mindfulness is born out of this equanimity the purest happiness and peace possible as a human being or any being is born out of this equanimity. The Buddha said, all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. Let's sit for a few minutes, and then I'd like to teach you that chant. If you'd like to join in after I I say the chant, please do. Anicca, Watasankara, Upatuwa, Yadamino, Upakitua, Niruchanti, Desa, Upasumo, Sukho, Anicca Watasankara, Upatua Yadamino, Upatua 
Pakituwa Niruchanti Desa Upasumo Sukho May we be peaceful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.